All right, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21? I don't think we got very far last time, so uh, I think we'll get a little farther this time. But verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As we come to Revelation 21, as we said last time, we move from time into eternity. Once again, remember that the millennial kingdom is not eternity. It has a beginning and an end. It is a thousand years in duration. The thousand-year millennial kingdom will be the culmination and climax of human history and thus still part of time. Revelation 20 focused on the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And so now as we move from chapter 20 into chapter 21, we move from time into eternity. As we said last time, at this point, all of human history, redemptive history, has come to an end. The millennium is over. Satan has been judged. The wicked have all been raised and judged and cast into the lake of fire which means at this point, the only thing left is the eternal state, what we call heaven. I say the only thing left, that's everything. That's everything, right? Now, in verse 1, once again, John said, Now I saw a new heaven. Let me stop there. In Scripture, there are three heavens mentioned. The first is the atmospheric heaven that surrounds the earth consisting of the air we breathe, you know, the place, the expanse where the birds fly. The second heaven is outer space or planetary heaven, uh, consisting of the sun, moon, stars, and all the celestial objects in the universe. And the third heaven is what the Bible also calls the heaven of heavens, or the dwelling place of God himself. Now you remember in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, Paul said that at one point he was caught up to the third heaven. He said, I don't know if I was alive or dead, uh, but I heard things so incredible. Why he didn't say he saw things, I don't know. Maybe he had his eyes closed. Or maybe God just let him hear things. But he said, I heard things so incredible it would be a crime to try to relate it to you. But we think, well, maybe this was uh, Paul after he was stoned in Lystra and dragged out of the city for dead. It could have been at that time he had this vision that he was could have been dead and God resurrected him. But he was caught up to the third heaven. Again, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And as we said last time, guys, this is not new in the chronological sense, but new in the qualitative sense. Sense The Greek word new here is kainos, and it means something that is brand new, fresh, never seen before. It's not new earth, new heaven in the sense that there was never a heaven or a never an earth before this. These are new because they're replacing the old heaven and the old earth, those that were tainted and corrupted by sin. All right. So this is something brand new, something never seen before. This present heaven and earth are not some kind of gigantic, you know, fixer-upper that God is going to rehab. 
He's going to vaporize the, this present heaven and earth and create something brand new, something that has never been seen before or tainted by sin. And we spent a lot of time talking about this last week, looking at 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. So you can reread, you can read those verses and go online if you want to hear what we had to say about that. But uh, God is going to destroy this present creation and it's going to make something brand new. And so he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And so again, guys, and we're kind of still reviewing just a little bit from last week, but as John now is talking to us, and uh, the Lord is relating things to John, everything, John tells us, everything that has been defiled by sin and Satan will be purged, or in other words, in other words destroyed, by fire and made new and since the earth was defiled by sin it's going to be destroyed by fire uh, peter talks about this okay the the fire that's going to just incinerate the universe not just yeah heaven and the earth um but the earth was defiled by sin so god is going to destroy it by fire and replace it and since the atmosphere, the air surrounding the earth, is the present domain of Satan. What does the Bible call him? The prince of the power of the air. And I think you could plug into that very easily without, you know, they couldn't do it for many centuries until the advent of, you know, radio and telecommunications. But I don't think it's wrong to say that Satan is the god of the air waves and uses them quite effectively to um, uh, send out his uh, false doctrine, his uh, godless demonic ideologies that we're all living with, uh, because that's the culture we live in. It's embraced these things. But the, it's interesting, the air, the domain of Satan, that's also going to be purged by fire, destroyed and replaced. Replaced with what? I don't know. What is our glorified bodies going to live on? We breathe air now, but these bodies are not glorified. Um, they were made for the earth, uh, but not for heaven and the new earth. So how are we going to survive? What mechanism is God going to put in operation? I don't know. We might be the kind of creatures our bodies just, I don't know, maybe... Uh, because God's presence is going to be so powerful, nothing at all will try to uh, counteract the presence of God. Maybe because in Him we live and move and have our being, we'll just absorb into our, our glorified bodies God's energy, God's life. We won't need to breathe, eat. Not that we're not going to eat. <laughs> Jesus didn't need to eat after His resurrection with His glorified body, but He still ate. And the reason for that is fellowship, fellowship. But um, I don't know what kind of existence this new creation is going to have, uh, how we're going to, it's going to affect us. Um, it be awesome to find out someday. Uh, but verse 1, once again, I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, first earth had passed away. This is interesting. Also, there was no more sea. Holy Spirit makes it a point to say there's going to be no more oceans, seas. Why will God do away with the oceans and seas of the world 
during this time? We don't know. Why in the eternal state does the Holy Spirit make it a point when God makes a new heavens, new earth, there'll be no more seas? Many suggest it's because they won't be needed any longer to purify the earth of pollutants because there won't be any pollution on the new uh, earth. Uh, I'm sure you understand this, but when God recreates the earth, new earth, I believe we're all going to go back to an agrarian culture. You know, industry, no factories belching out black smoke, no automobiles, jet planes, anything that emits pollution. It's going to be pure and pristine. And I believe we'll all be farmers. There's only going to be one city that I can see from Scripture, and that's going to be the New Jerusalem. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But let's get back to the seas for just in the oceans for a second. Um, many believe they won't be needed because, again, the earth, uh, they, they, they're not going to be needed any longer to purify the earth of all the pollution and all the pollutants that we uh, have to live with right now. One author, a scientist, said, and I quote, over 70% of the surface of our world is covered with salt water. The average death, depth of the ocean is 2.3 miles. Why does our planet need such a massive covering of salt water? Answer, to cleanse the earth and make, it, and make life possible. The earth is bathed in God's great antiseptic solution composed of about 96% water, 3.5% salt, and about 0.5% trace constituents, chlorine, magnesium, calcium, and the like, the salty brine of the ocean of the oceans purges, cleanses, and preserves our planet, making it fit to live in. Many of the pollutants and waste we produce get washed out of the soil and into our streams and rivers. Others we deliberately dump into the rivers. The rivers wash these materials to the sea, the oceans. The antiseptic salinity of the sea absorbs, scrubs, and breaks down these pollutants and wastes. The sun heats the sea, causing only pure, clean water vapor to float up into the sky, forming clouds which bring refreshing rain back to the land, a continuous cycle of cleansing and renewal. But in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more pollution, no more decay, no more need for cleansing, and thus no more need for a salty sea, end quote. Now, and I believe that's what John was referring to when he said there'd be no more sea, no more salty seas or oceans that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be no water of any kind in the eternal state now i don't know if there will be um i i don't know so if you're like if you're a surfer and i'm not sure who here would be a surfer but if you're a surfer and you like to catch a wave once in a while you might be out of luck in the eternal state uh, although you could surf on air you could, you know, you could surf the galaxies uh, and have a ball, but uh, maybe not on water. But um, before leaving this, I want to just bring up a couple more things. Uh, author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, uh, when it says, you know, there'll be no more salt seas, but not necessarily the absence of all water, Worsby said it simply indicates that the new earth will have a different arrangement as far as water is concerned. Three-fourths of our globe consists of water, but this won't be the case in the eternal state. In John's day, 
the sea meant danger, storms, and separation. John himself was on the island of Patmos at this very time he's writing this down. So perhaps John was giving us more, listen, than a geography lesson, end quote. Now that's interesting. What is Worsby alluding to? Well, he doesn't get into it, but another commentator I was reading, he does kind of go there to kind of answer what Warren Worsby is maybe getting at. Uh, this author said, and I quote, from a metaphorical perspective, commentators have seen the absence of the sea as symbolic uh, of the absence of evil. Uh, the Bible sa even says that Satan's throne is in the midst of the seas. That's interesting. Uh, then he quotes a Robert Thomas who summarizes. Thomas says, and I quote, It is not that the sea is evil in itself, but that its aspect is one of hostility to mankind. For instance, the sea was what stood guard over John in his prison on Patmos, the island of Patmos, and separated him from the churches of Asia. The sea is the first of seven evils that John says will no longer exist in the eternal state, the other six being death, mourning, weeping, pain, the curse, and night, end quote. All right, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice the emphasis, all right? Let me say it like I think John said it. Then I, John, saw. He's very excited, all right, that he was given the blessing of seeing the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And guys, as beautiful as the new heavens and the new earth is going to be, because John said he saw those. When he saw the New Jerusalem, it just he just turned to it. It captivated him. He was just awestruck at the beauty of this city. Just totally, uh, the New Jerusalem overshadowed uh, John's thinking of everything else. Right, um, the New Jerusalem is called the holy city, the holy city in contrast with the earthly Jerusalem, which is spiritually called, in, in Revelation 11, verse 8, Sodom and Egypt. Not good. The new Jerusalem is not heaven, guys. Some wrongly make that claim. Heaven is infinite, all right? The new Jerusalem is going to have uh, borders, and it's going to be, we learn from chapter 22, it's going to be roughly 1,500 miles a cube. 1,500 miles wide, uh, deep, and uh, high. So uh, a gigantic city. It's going to be about three-quarters of the size of the moon. Hang on to that because I'm going to come back to that. But New Jerusalem is not heaven. It's going to be the capital of heaven. Uh, it's not synonymous with heaven because its dimensions are given to us in chapter 21, verse 16. I mis misspoke. Um, let me share something with you that I don't really subscribe to, but it's a pretty common theory. And I, think, I felt if it's that common and so many people buy into it, I'll share it with you. Uh, I'm not really sure I agree with it, but I'll share it with you. Um, 
Many commentators point out because the verbs used of the New Jerusalem are in the present tense, that this thing was just not created when John sees it descending from heaven. That it's been around. It's been around, and they believe it was orbiting the earth during the millennial kingdom. And they claim that the redeemed will live in the new Jerusalem because we'll have our glorified bodies. We can zip up there anytime we want, okay? So we can zip up there at night and sleep or do whatever, and then zip down to the earth because we will be uh, rulers over different parts of the earth, the Bible says, depending on how faithful we were in serving Jesus now, we will, that will determine uh, how many cities Jesus will give us to oversee or to rule over in the millennial kingdom. So they believe that, um, that uh, then at the end of the millennial kingdom, this new Jerusalem, which has been orbiting the earth, is going to eventually come down to the earth and land. And that's what John is seeing. Look, John was through the millennial kingdom. I mean, you know, he, if this thing was orbiting the earth, he would have seen it for a thousand years. I'm not quite so sure he would have been so ex excited uh, even seeing it land. It's like he's seeing something for the very first time. That's why I don't really give this too much credence. Um, I do believe the new Jerusalem is around right now. But I believe it's in heaven. And God is going to bring it to the earth. And I'll tell you why I believe that in just a second. But um, the second um, statement in this passage that gives us insight into this city is John's description of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, he said, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, I like what Ray Stedman, um, very godly man, with the Lord now, good commentator, pastor, um, he commented on this. Uh, John said, I saw this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed or adorned for her husband. Stebbins said, and I quote, we all love weddings. The climax of every wedding is the moment when the bride makes her entrance at the beginning of the aisle. Now, that's kind of key. Because in a wedding, the bride is hidden until she appears at the back of the church before making her way down the aisle to, you know, and her bridegroom sees her dressed in her beautiful wedding gown. If Jerusalem the new, is like a bride adorned for her husband, uh, I don't think it was orbiting the earth for a thousand years. This is like, you know, the first time God unveils this incredible city, which John says, it's like a beautiful bride. Adorned for her husband. We all love weddings, <laughs> he said. Um, and the moment when the bride makes her entrance at the beginning of the aisle, beautifully dressed for her husband, all heads turn. You hear the collective intake of breath as every eye is instantly captivated by the literally breathtaking sight of the beautifully adorned bride. In that moment, the poor fellow standing at the, uh, at the altar in his rented tux is completely forgotten. Well, guys, that's just the way it is. All right? It's all about the gals. It's all about the bride. It is the bride, so achingly beautiful in her white gown and gossamer veil that has captured all eyes and every heart, end quote. It's going to be the new Jerusalem. It's going to take our breath away. I'm convinced as we move from time into eternity, 
from the millennial kingdom, which is going to be pretty awesome, pretty awesome for a thousand years, right? And now we're stepping into a whole different dimensionality, I believe. And suddenly here comes this, well, God vaporizes the present creation and does everything brand new. I think that the earth has to be a lot bigger than what it is now for this new Jerusalem to land on the earth. Um, it's, it's going to be almost as big as the moon, which is one-sixth the size of earth. So it's going to be big. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 22. But um, I want you to notice this in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word prepared in verse 2 is the same word in the Greek used by Jesus in John 14, verse 2, when he told his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you same greek word many expositors regard the promise of jesus in john 14 verse 2 i'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you as referring to the father's house located in the new jerusalem i believe it's i believe it's around right now but uh, God's going to unveil it. He's going to present it uh, as we move into the eternal state. But um, here we see that um, uh, that place prepared for Jesus' saints. Um, again, like a bride prepared for and presented to her husband. Remember what Jesus said in John 14. I'm going to say, he said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again someday to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you might always be with me, is the idea. So, Jesus, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just say this, we'll come back to that. This new Jerusalem will be our heavenly capital city. Turn to Hebrews 11. And I want to first look at verse 16, and then I want to back up and look at verses 8 to 10. But verse 16 first, Hebrews 11, verse 16. Because we're talking about the new Jerusalem, which is going to be the city we're going to live in forever. This is going to be our hometown, okay? And the writer of the Hebrews said, and I, and I quote verse 16, but now... They desire a better, the, the redeemed desire a better that is a heavenly country. We're passing through. There's nothing on the earth that really we really want as far as a city. We live in towns. Some live in the city of Chicago and other cities around the country, different Christians, of course, but it's not our home. We're pilgrims, sojourners. We're only passing through this life on a journey. And our journey is really to heaven, like the, uh, you know, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That was what that was all about, right? And uh, they were on their way to the celestial city. Well, that's, you know, the, the, the city of New Jerusalem uh, that we're finally going. And that's what we're waiting for. That's what the writer is talking. We, we desire a better country than earth, whatever, wherever we live. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed to be called to call the redeemed. 
his, his people and he their God. For he has prepared, listen, a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. Well, can I say this? Jesus is still working on it. He's going to work on this place, New Jerusalem, until the rapture, when he comes and gets us and takes us to be with him, right? As we said last time, I think, you know, the earth, not what man has done to it, but the earth, there are places that's quite beautiful where nature is still kind of pristine. And uh, God did all of that. Jesus did. He created all things. For by him, all things were created, right? And without him, nothing was made that was made, John 3, uh, 1, 3. If he made the earth and the universe so beautiful in six days, and he's been preparing a place for us, working on this city for 2,000 years so far, wow. It's, that's hard to even get your mind around. The beauty, right? Look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, total walk of faith. But by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. We know it as the new Jerusalem, our true home. And guys, as we talked about a few months ago, when we talked about cities and how that, you go back to the origin of cities, it was bad. The first city was uh, a place of rebellion. It was created uh, as a place where rebels could live who didn't want to honor God or obey God, right? And I know that there are cities that have some beautiful places in them. It's getting worse and worse. Um, just listening to somebody on TV today before I came out here who said that when she first moved to a particular city, I'm not going to trash one city over all the other major cities, but she used to like to go to a park in this city. It was beautiful. And now there's drug addicts and needles and homeless people and everywhere. It's been ruined. But the only city, as I can tell from Scripture, the only city that's going to be on the earth during the eternal state is the New Jerusalem. It will be the only city that has ever existed that will have never been tainted by sin, nor will ever be tainted by sin. And I believe, my own personal feelings, that's going to be the only city in the universe, the city of the great king, the new Jerusalem. Where are we all going to live? Well, there's no reason to doubt we won't live on the earth, although I do believe we'll be able to travel the universe, the new heavens, at the speed of what? Light? Oh, it's way too slow. Speed of thought. And one of the reasons I believe God made the universe and will make the new, made this current universe so big, but will make the new heavens infinite where we're going to be able to travel it. It will take eternity to see it. One planet more beautiful than the next. There's an interesting verse in chapter 22 which says that we're going to be going on missions for the Lord during the eternal state. Not 
evangelistic missions, but some kind of work we're going to be doing for... Hey, look, laying on a cloud for eternity, playing a harp doesn't really turn many of us on, right? I mean, it's like, wow. A lot of unbelievers say, if that's heaven, count me out. Well, that's not what the Bible says. We're going to be able to travel the universe on missions for our king. We don't know what they are, but they're going to be really great, okay? But um, I believe we're going to live in on the earth, um, you know, and uh, we're going to re live in the New Jerusalem. But um, who knows what the earth is going to be like, and probably if we're doing anything, uh, it could be agricultural in nature. Not that we have to eat, but uh, I don't know. I just think that there's going to be no cities on the earth, only the New Jerusalem, and uh, the rest is going to be just beautiful paradise um, and so on. So we'll have to wait and see. But, but this idea of the New Jerusalem being our true home, our true home, it reminds me of a true story uh, about a man named uh, Samuel Morrison. Now, Samuel Morrison had been a missionary in Africa for 25 years. And he was coming home now after 25 years, hard ministry, uh, you know, really just serving God with all of his hard, difficult ministry, okay, primitive conditions, but he, he hung in there, he loved the Lord, wanted to see people saved. So now he's too old to continue, so he's coming back to America. And he happens to be on the same ocean liner that then-President Teddy Roosevelt was on, who had been gone for three weeks in Africa on a safari hunting expedition. And Morrison was there uh, at the railing of the ocean liner as they're getting close to New York Harbor. And the closer they got, he began to see thousands of people. And at one point, all these people began to cheer like crazy, you know, for the president, Teddy Roosevelt. They began to cheer. The band started to play. Uh, confetti was flying, uh, cheering. People were going crazy, right? And Morrison was very depressed about that. After spending 25 years in Africa, there was nobody there to greet him when he came home. In fact, it was so bad that when he got off the ship, so many people were there in New York, he couldn't even get a cab to his friend's house where he was going to stay for a few days. So he had to walk. And he's walking, and he's feeling pretty sorry for himself. And he said, Lord, I, I know it's the president. I get that. But he's gone three weeks in Africa, comes back, and half the country's come out to greet him. I've been there 25 years in Africa. I come home, and there's no one. Lord, it just, just doesn't seem fair. And the Lord said, son, you're not home yet. Let's remember that. We are not home yet. Don't expect the world to applaud us for serving God faithfully. Often we're the target of ridicule and persecution. But this isn't our home. And someday, and I believe someday soon, when the Lord calls us to be with him, the rapture, the Bible says he is coming quick. Actually, Jesus said this, I think in Revelation 15. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Speaking of the rapture and how we're going to receive our rewards right away, 
And then seven years later, as the tribulation period is coming to an end, Jesus is going to return with his saints and holy angels to establish his kingdom uh, on the earth. So, hey, you can't even believe the homecoming you're going to get when you are taken to be with him. It's going to be incredible. But verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, sometimes Christians, when they read Revelation and read about the New Jerusalem, and there's going to be more that John's going to present in a little while, um, they're taken in by all the beauty. Well, John was himself initially. But guys, it's not going to be the streets of gold or the pearly gates. They're going to be the most important aspect of this city. You know what the most important thing about this city is going to be? That God dwells there. That God dwells there. You know, the Bible gives an interesting record of the places God dwelt. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought God was omnipresent. I mean, his presence is everywhere, right? That's true. But we're talking about places God dwelt with regard to fellowship. Yeah, his presence fills the universe. He's everywhere right now. And not just right now presently, his presence fills time. So from the beginning of time to the end of time, physical universe, his presence is there too. So yeah, his presence fills the universe, but the Bible records an interesting, um, it gives us the interesting um, record of the places God dwelt. The first place that God dwelt uh, or visited with man was in the Garden of Eden, right? So we read about the Garden of Eden. God created this beautiful garden, made uh, Adam and Eve. And every day, this is before the fall, every day... God came down in fellowship with Adam and Eve, face to face, right? And this went on until they sinned against God and were driven out of the garden. Well, then he dwelt with Israel. Remember, he called the people to be a special nation. The Jewish people made a covenant with them there at Mount Sinai after delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt. And he made a covenant with them, and part of it was that they were to build a tabernacle there in the wilderness. Uh, it was also called the Tent of Meeting, where God would meet with them, a place where God and man could have fellowship with each other because, of course, uh, the sacrifice of the animals to, to atone for their sins, and uh, that would allow them to have fellowship with God, uh, and so on. And so uh, later on, the temple was built a permanent structure where God dwelt there um, on his throne on the earth, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and so on. But as you re read this, the history of Israel, well, at one point they turned against God. And God gave them year after year, many, many years to repent, come back to him, sent them many prophets, he said, rising up early and, 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 and calling them back where they wouldn't listen. And so finally their immorality and idolatry got so intense 
that we read in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, at one point the Shekinah glory lifted up from the Ark of the Covenant and made its way, his way, to the threshold of the uh, tabernacle, the temple, the temple by this time, paused as if to look back one last time at what was the fellowship he had at one time with the nation. And then the Shekinah glory left the temple altogether, crossed the Kindron Valley, and disappeared into the wilderness. God was no longer dwelling with his people Israel. Well, the next time we read about how God dwelt with people, we turn to John's Gospel, which starts out, you know, in uh, which starts out, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word could be translated tabernacled. Tabernacle. Remember now, the tabernacle was a temporary, it was a tent replaced by the temple, which was a permanent structure. They speak of Christ. They speak of Christ. Jesus came the first time. He pitched a tent among mankind to dwell with us, right? The tent was his physical body. It wasn't uh, permanent. Uh, it was going to die and be replaced with a glorified, eternal body, a temple, right? So as we come to John's gospel, now we see how that God at one point became man and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Today, God does not live in man-made temples. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking God lives in man-made structures like cathedrals or temples or something else. And unfortunately, if people have this mindset, uh, it causes them to believe that they have to go to the church or the cathedral or the temple because that's where God lives. People that have that concept um, either have never had or they have lost the consciousness of God's divine presence all around them. But a lot of people still believe that God dwells in structures made with hands. The Bible says that God does not in the new covenant he he first of all lives in the temples of our hearts first uh, corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 tells us and paul said in ephesians 2 verses 21 and 2 he also lives in the temple of his church so we are the temple of the living god not a building anyways verse 3 once again and i heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of god is with with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people god himself will be with them and be their god three times in verse three it tells us that god will dwell with his people in the eternal state i'm talking visibly literally and visibly god is going to dwell with us which means when jesus comes um when uh, when jesus comes for his church we at that point will never be separated from him ever again as i said he took on a human tent or a body and tabernacled among us for 33 years um, and then went away to prepare a place for us 
That was 2,000 years ago, right? But someday he has promised to come back that we might dwell with us, he might dwell with us and we with him forever. Remember what David said in Psalm 23, verse 6, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? This was something that was very common in, Middle e in the Middle Eastern countries, very common uh, in the Roman Empire in the Middle East, but I went online today and found out that the, these little things have survived all these centuries. What am I talking about? Um, tear bottles, or sometimes called tear catchers. And they're little bottles, some of them more ornate than others. Uh, some of them have a wide lip on top, and the idea was that when you would cry, tears of sadness, maybe a loved one had died, you would cry, you would catch your tears in this bottle, seal it, and place it in the tomb as a sign of love and respect for your loved one who had died. And I guess they're still around today, because you can go online and buy them, if, you, if you'd like. Um, but notice that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Not parents, not pastors, not friends any longer, but only God himself. You know, guys, there are some things you just can't delegate somebody else to do, okay? I'm getting married today, but I really don't have the time. Will you stand in for me? And I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody has done that over the centuries, okay? But there are some things you can't delegate to somebody else to do. And this is what God is saying here. He's saying, look, this is one of those times when I and I alone can and will wipe away every tear from the eyes of my dear saints who are now with me in heaven. Let me just say this, guys, and we'll bring this to a close. You might be crying now. We live in a, a world full of sorrow. Adversity, heartache, loved ones dying. You might be crying now, but God promises that when you see him face to face, he will wipe away your tears and he will embrace you. And basically, I believe, whisper in our ears, I am so glad you're here with me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I used to have a picture in my old office. And I say used to have a picture. I like this picture a lot. But we had a microburst years ago, and it kind of tore off part of the ceiling roof of this old office I had for the church church office and uh, so I had to the owner had to let construction people in to fix everything into our suites right and uh, when they were all done the only thing missing was this picture somebody liked it so much they took it and that's okay it's okay they got the picture I got the reality coming and the picture was simply it was heaven. You could see the clouds. It was, you know, it was like a heavenly scene. 
And here's Jesus. Now, if you're looking at the picture, he'd be facing towards you. And he was embracing, giving a big bear hug to one of the saints. Just, you know. And I loved it because it's like, when we get to heaven, I can just imagine Jesus. You know, we're going to stand up, come before him. He's going to just give us a great big hug. And tell us how much he loves us and how joyful he is that we're going to spend eternity with him. Our Jesus, right? Part of the reason there's going to be no more tears in heaven is because in his presence there is what? Fullness of joy. Um, Isaiah 51 verse 11 says, The redeemed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing. I believe the idea is the heavenly Zion, New Jerusalem. Come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. Psalm 16, verse 11. David said, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, Heaven is going to be an existence completely devoid of all the negatives that we have ever known in our lives on the earth that any human being has ever known. Heaven will be an existence completely devoid of all the negatives, right? Um, in fact, John can't really fully describe the New Jerusalem. He can't put it into words. He can't tell you what it's like it's too incredible so he has to define it with the absence of the negatives be no more death no more crying no more tears right those are the absence of the negatives that doesn't even begin to get into the presence of the positives we'll have to wait until we get there to see what that's all about but some people believe these tears and um let me just say this and we'll close some people believe that these tears that God's going to wipe away um, are really tears uh, over the wasted opportunities um, that we, you know, opportunities we squandered to serve God uh, when we could have served Him and re been rewarded in heaven. And uh, that, that might be uh, in part true. I don't know. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of people that, are, you know, the, the um, Bema Seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 3 it talks about it. Um, it it's going to be uh, the reward uh, of, for the, um, the saints. Okay, this is going to be, this is not a punitive judgment. It's a judgment seat like you would uh, if you were in the Olympic Games and you uh, won a race and you're coming up before the judge's seat to receive your prize. For us, the Bema Seat of Christ is not punitive. It's rewards-based. We've talked about this, okay? And um, But I don't believe it's going to be a time free of tears. I think there's going to be a lot of tears at the Bema seat, people crying because of wasted opportunity. So I think that is true. But I don't see that's what John's talking about right here, okay? Um, John specifies 
why there won't be any tears shed in heaven. Verse 4, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, heaven will be the absence of all the negatives. An existence where there won't be any death or pain of any kind. Um, no hardships, no adversity. Uh, not like we endured for the cause of Christ on the earth right now. And some have really endured hardships for the cause of Christ. Um, our brothers and sisters living in communist countries or Muslim countries where to be a Christian, you any moment you could be killed. But heaven will be the complete absence. All the wicked are going to be, well, they're not going to be allowed. We'll see that in verse 8. Okay, we'll save it for next time. But um, well, let me just end there because uh, i got a few more things I wanted to say, but we'll just end there. Pick it up next time, God willing, because uh, this is such a great subject. It's hard to get through it in one, one study. So uh, we'll pick up uh, looking at heaven uh, next time in our study. So, Father, we thank you for preparing a place for us, Lord Jesus, preparing a place for us, and someday you're going to come and get us. Take us to that place. As Peter said, it's uh, an inheritance reserved in heaven. It's got our, we're on the guest list. Well, we won't be guests, actually. We will um, be children. Children are, are not guests in the Father's house. They are joint heirs. And so we thank you that we have a place where the joy is unspeakable, full of glory. It's just beyond anything we can even put into words. And uh, it'll never fade away. Heaven will be forever. And uh, we thank you. I look forward to, be, to you coming, Lord Jesus, and taking us to live in this incredible uh, new city called New Jerusalem. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.